everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of CNA Newsroom, a podcast that brings you great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm here in the studio with our executive producer, Kate Vike. Kate, how are you? I'm doing pretty fine. Pretty yeah. fine. We are closing in on deadline, but <laughs> I feel positive that this will turn out. Yeah, we're supposed to release this podcast in what, like... Two hours? Two hours. And Kate and I need to Marie Kondo our studio because we have all these wires everywhere. Cables. Everywhere. Cables. We don't even know what they belong to, but yeah. they're just in the way. And also, my microphone stand is broken and we're a Catholic organization. <laughs> so my microphone is actually held up by a paint can. And, uh, and that's how we do it, you know? It's not so much a budget question. It's more of just a time management <laughs> question on my part. It's like an, are we going to order a new microphone stand or is the paint can working? <laughs> I've just really bonded. I'm used I to know. it now. I don't even know what color it is. It's mar- marquee. The color is marquee. What is that? It's a, it's a soft gray. <laughs> <laughs> You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. We have a great episode for you guys this week. Ed Condon and I will discuss the church's sexual abuse crisis, what's happened and what's coming next. Jonah McKeown will have a segment from a homeless shelter in Washington, D.C. And Mary Rezach will have a review of the New York Times bestselling book, Girl, Wash Your Face. But first, here's what you need to know. Catholic leaders in the U.S. are calling for immigration reform and the end of a stalemate over funding for President Trump's border wall. Cardinal Joseph Tobin of Newark said immigrants and asylum seekers are not pawns in a political debate, but strangers who we as Christians must welcome. Bipartisan lawmakers will speak at the National March for Life in Washington, D.C., January 18th. Republicans Chris Smith of New Jersey and Steve Daines of Montana will be joined by Democrats Katrina Jackson of Louisiana and Dan Lipinski of Illinois. And finally, in the Philippines, about 5 million people joined in the annual Black Nazarene procession on Wednesday. The Black Nazarene is a life-size statue of a kneeling Christ in a maroon robe crowned with thorns. The statue was brought to the Philippines in 1606. It has survived fires, floods, earthquakes, and typhoons. You can find these stories and more at catholicnewsagency.com. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Bike. Welcome back. I'm J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by D.C. Editor Ed Condon to discuss um, what's happening with um, Archbishop Theodore McCarrick with the ongoing sexual abuse crisis in the church and how things are moving forward. Ed, welcome to the program. Nice to be back. Yeah. And Ed had um, Ed had a piece this week uh, in the Washington Post about uh, what's going on with Archbishop McCarrick. That was um, very good. So well done, Ed. And it was actually kind of an iteration of a, a longer piece that you wrote about Archbishop McCarrick at catholicnewsagency.com. So the gist of that is that um, it's been reported frequently that Archbishop McCarrick right now is on a trial at the CDF, but you kind of explain that what's happening with him is not not actually a trial. That's right. I mean, people have a tendency to call anything that looks like it's going to determine guilt or innocence a trial. But canon law, as you all know, has the option for a full trial, something we'd recognize. Panels of judges, lawyers for the prosecution and defense, trading evidence back and forth, 
Um, but that's not what's happening with Archbishop McCarrick. They're using a really stripped down administrative process, right? Uh, where basically the the initial investigation they do uh, turns up enough evidence that they feel they don't need to go to a formal trial. Now, right. There's still the chance for, in this case, Archbishop McCarrick to defend himself, to, to see the evidence against him, and to make a response, and for him to receive legal advice. But you know, it really cuts out a lot of the procedure that can take up a lot of time. Yeah, this process that Ed is talking about, it's called, we, we refer to it, canon lawyers refer to it as the administrative penal process. And um, as a canon lawyer, I've been involved in a, a number of administrative penal processes. And one of the things that I think is most telling for us about it is that um, bishops or the Vatican only use this administrative penal process when, as, as Ed says, they're fairly certain, the evidence is fairly clear about what's what, what the result of, of the process will be. I mean, there's, it's still important that there's the right of defense, but um, but there's a little bit there's much more clarity than there would be if 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 a full sort of canonical trial was implemented. So it's much more stripped down um, than a trial. But what's unique about this one, Ed? One thing I wanted to highlight in terms of how an administrative penal process works and and the sort of weight of evidence that's needed to to lead to it. Something that I've encountered in in diocesan practice, and I'm sure you have too, is only the Pope can authorize the laicization of a cleric. That's something that has to to come from him directly, the authority to do so, especially when it involves a bishop. Now, when the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, who has this sort of authority regarding priests through delegation from the Pope, receives a file from a diocese involving a complaint of sexual abuse, uh, and they say there seems to be enough here for the local diocese to do uh, an administrative penal process rather than have a full trial, they'll often give that diocese the authority to impose laicization as a penalty at the same time, sort of almost saying, you're probably going to need this. Um, so if if the CDF is using the same process with Archbishop McCarrick, it strongly implies that they're they're expecting some kind of guilty verdict on at least some of the charges. Yeah. And, and you know, part of the conversation about that has been that the, the expectation, you know, as these charges have come forward, it's been you know, more and more manifestly clear that that something has happened. I think what a lot of people um, have asked, what a lot of Catholics have felt frustrated about is, um, if it seems manifestly clear in the in the media that something has happened, if we have all these reports of something having happened, why why do we why are we going through this? And and for me, one thing that's that that we're seeing with the McCarrick um, situation is a reminder of why we have legal processes at all, why we have a penal process or a trial at all. Um, why do you think those are important? Um, what are you? Why do you think that matters now? Well, I mean, I think due process is something that we we can't stand behind firmly enough. Um, whether we're talking about civil law or canon law, it was actually Pope Benedict the Sixteenth had a had a very famous quote where he said, "A society without laws is a society without rights." And and really, when we're talking about you know a presumption of innocence and the right to a, a full process, we're talking about the most basic rights a person can have. It's something that we really need to be very careful about guarding and not going into a, an impression of trial by media or whatever. Uh, something else I think that the the Archbishop McCarrick case has really highlighted is um, this thorny issue of what is a credible accusation. This is something that we've seen in the media over and over again. That you know the first announcement from the Archdiocese of New York was that they'd received a credible allegation. Most people reasonably assume that a credible allegation means it has some credibility. We can have faith in it. You know, it looks pretty solid, but the legal standard of what constitutes credible is actually a very, very low bar. It just basically means it it's not obviously false. Um, 
and I think we're we're moving to a situation where people are beginning to understand or at least question um, the suitability of this word credibility because it can give a sort of false impression of guilt before the fact. Yeah, and, and um, just as we're trying to understand it, and as um, as we as journalists are trying to figure out how to how to cover this with integrity, bishops are trying, I think, to figure out how to respond. Uh, with integrity, which they um, uh, first made a, a, a full attempt to do in, at their November meeting. We've talked about that in the past. Um, the bishops were on retreat last week. The U.S. bishops were on retreat last week at Mundelein Seminary. And the focus of that retreat, is, as you wrote, was about the importance of personal integrity in dealing with allegations of sexual abuse uh, or misconduct on the part of bishops. So, yeah, I, I think one of the things that the Pope said in his letter to the bishops as they were getting ready to start the retreat in Mundelein uh, was this emphasis, as you say, on personal conversion and and communion, but a different kind of communion among the bishops. Uh, one of the things that really jumped out at me in that letter was the Pope warned against the the sort of false comfort of compromise, that there's a temptation. And I think this is a temptation that, frankly, the U.S. bishops have given into before, of trying to form a common front by any means necessary, and often taking a path of, I don't want to say false consensus, but Something that you know has something for everyone, and everyone can get behind. When really, what's needed is tough decisions and frank honesty among the bishops. And I think we started to see that in Baltimore. Actually, we were seeing bishops start to talk to each other with more honesty and love than respect and deference. And I think that's something that really will lead to a real communion and hopefully a real conversion. I'm optimistic about that too, and and I was surprised. I was surprised by my optimism about that. Um, I know that a lot of people had um, had skepticism about the the purpose of this retreat, and a lot of Catholics have felt like, why are the bishops going on a retreat when there's this major issue to deal with? But in talking with bishops this week and hearing hearing about how the retreat has has gone, and then reflecting on it, for me at least, it seems if this has really been an occasion um, for uh, for prayer and for a call to, to to personal conversion, to dealing with this, not only with integrity, but as 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 Christians, to finding an authentically Christian way to deal with this, then praise God. Um, but the next step, of course, is um, is dealing with it. And so a lot of people are looking towards uh, the, the Vatican's meeting in February with the heads of, um, of bishops' conferences from around the world. Going from the United States will be Cardinal DiNardo, the president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, and Archbishop Jose Gomez, the vice president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference. Cardinal Blaise Supich is on the planning committee for the, um, for the meeting, and so um, he'll be there as well. What do you think will come out of that meeting? I mean, what do you expect as you look towards that meeting? I, I'm expecting the unexpected, hopefully. <laughs> um, like you, I'm, try, I'm trying to be an eternal optimist about these things. If we end up seeing in February in Rome the Pope follow on the same tone that he took with the U.S. bishops in his letter, I think we could be in for a surprise. Uh, I, I, and you may disagree with me on this, but um, I've long thought that there's the temptation when the church deals with the sexual abuse crisis to constantly try and reinvent the wheel. And I'm not sure that there's a procedural fix for this. I have my skepticism that there was ever a procedural fix really needed. Uh, the church has never been shy of law or processes. You know, these have, these have been there forever. But really what we've seen is a, a catastrophic succession of human failures in not applying processes or uh, looking the other way or trying to get around them or soften them. Um, so if what the Pope's calling for is a real personal conversion on the part of the global leadership of the bishops in relation to abuse, I think we could be in for you know, a real new era in that sense. But everything will depend on how far the Pope is willing to go in making sure that happens. 
I think it's a both and. I really do think that that sense of conversion is an absolutely critical first step, and I'm glad that the Pope opened with it. But I do think that there are some um, clear procedural gaps that need to be addressed, but I hope that um, that that'll come. I don't think it's going to come in this meeting. In fact, Andrea Tornielli, who's the editorial director of the Vatican Dicastery for Communications, had wrote a wrote kind of a, a, a little column today in which he said that there are excessive media expectations in view of the upcoming meeting. Uh, his point was that um, a lot of members of the media are expecting like policies to come out of this meeting, and he says that. In fact, what will come out of this meeting practically is for the leaders of these bishops' conferences to go home with um, some ideas, he says, about what they must and must not do to address to address these issues. So uh, I'm worried because I think a lot of people in the United States, not only media, but a lot of people will have excessive expectations for this meeting. The reality is that there won't be something concrete coming out of it. But um, my hope is that the U.S. bishops will come back with a plan for what they can do at, at their June meeting, and June will be a year since the announcement of, of credible allegations against Archbishop McCarrick. That's something for us to look forward to, should, should that be the way that things unfold. Um, we will keep you posted about how things are unfolding, and, um, and uh, you can look, as always, to catholicnewsagency.com for excellent reporting and analysis on that from, uh, from Ed Condon in D.C. And Ed, thanks for being on the podcast today. Always a joy. We actually talked in this segment for about a half an hour for what's probably going to be an 8 to 12 minute segment on the podcast. So if you want to hear the whole thing, you can go to our website, catholicnewsagency.com. Thanks, everybody. It's hard to count how many homeless people there are in the United States. A lot depends on who you count, how you count, and when you count. That makes it hard to say whether homelessness is getting better or worse, especially because homeless people move around. Last year, for example, the homeless population in Washington, D.C. dropped by more than 7%. But the homeless population in some surrounding counties increased. And that kind of points to the problem with this kind of data. If you live in your car or you bounce between shelters, how do you decide what census to take? Here's what we do know for sure. On any given day in America, there are more than 500,000 people with no home. This week, our producer, Jonah McKeown, takes us to a place that ministers specifically to homeless men and aims to tackle the problems these men face head-on. In a church basement in Washington, D.C., several dozen homeless men are welcomed in for breakfast and coffee. Every morning before the meal, the men recite a kind of creed, a pledge to honor each other and to take care of themselves physically, mentally, and spiritually. Let's try to have a good day. One thing that I know is that homelessness doesn't take a holiday, and neither does hunger. This is Kim Cox, president of the Father McKenna Center, a Catholic social service organization located not far from the United States Capitol. They offer services for homeless men, and they operate a small food pantry for the community. She says it's the last day center in the city that serves men only. The thing that I observe, and we've got data on the men who come here, is that there's five main reasons for for a guy to be homeless. This is what we see. Job loss. They've lost a job. And, of course, then they lose their housing. Um, Family dissolution. Uh, A third reason someone's homeless is that he has recently been released 
from prison. Very often when someone has been released from prison, their family has abandoned them, moved on either physically or emotionally, and he just he simply has nowhere to go. The two most important things that I see that are the root cause of homelessness among the men that come to the McKenna Center are addiction and mental illness. The center offers two meals a day, laundry facilities, and case management for the men. There's also space for about 20 men to sleep during the coldest months of the winter. For the men who are homeless, we offer a day program. Take a shower, have a good meal, get their clothes washed, but most importantly, those sorts of things, food, clothing, and so forth, that's really the invitation into a relationship, and it's a relationship of trust. When we work with the men, we recognize that they are broken in mind, body, and spirit. She told me the drug synthetic marijuana, also known as K2, Scoopy, or Spice, is a huge problem for the men and is causing serious health issues, including overdoses. This is mainly because it's cheaper than the devastating opioids ravaging some parts of the country. In terms of recent developments... The stresses that these guys are under seem to be increasing. There seems to be a lot more anxiety that, again, four years ago I wasn't as aware of. So I do think the problems um, that are causing homelessness are on the increase. Again, this is what I'm seeing among the men that we serve. The center is named after a legendary Washington priest, who Kim says inspires their mission to serve the poor to this day. The Father McKenna Center is named after Father Horace McKenna. He was a Jesuit priest who worked here in the parish in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And it was his practice to just take care of people in the neighborhood. So when he passed away, McKenna Center was established in his honor to carry out that work. The Catholic identity of the Father McKenna Center, which is actually located on the campus of a boys' Catholic high school, is vital to helping the men rebuild their lives, Kim says. We make a lot of opportunities available for the young men at the school to volunteer. One of our founding values is that each person is made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, they are deserving of dignity and respect, as well as all of the basic needs that human beings have to have. One of the things that we know about Christ was the, how important sharing a meal was. Certainly at the Last Supper, he showed that to us. When you look through his miracles, when you look through what he did with people, frequently it was around sharing a meal, making people feel comfortable at table. The difference between, for example, me and someone who's homeless is not that great. That our basic humanity is shared. Director of Services Cortez McDaniel, formerly homeless himself, has dedicated his life to helping men escape the streets as he did. He offers a pep talk to the men every morning before lunch and also keeps case management files on around 70 men at any one time. See, part of this whole thing is we also have to become responsible in areas where we've been irresponsible, right? If you're using a substance or drinking uh, and constantly clouding your judgment, you're not going to get this stuff done. So you have to exercise some self-control and some restraint, right? And you have to be able to say no to these things. And if you're already caught up in it, then you have to come and be honest with me. For him, his work is a spiritual mission. I do this job because I love God. If I can't love his creations, then I have no shot at having a relationship with God.
Although the center makes the best use they can of the space they have, it's clear that more space and better facilities are needed. The former parish building in which it's housed was built back in 1859, with no significant improvements done in the last 30 years or so. The spaces we have were basically set up to serve the parish. They're not set up to serve as a social services agency. The center is in the midst of a multi-million dollar fundraising campaign for a major renovation of the space. When it's finished, the guests will enjoy more seating for lunch, as well as a dedicated classroom for teaching recidivism prevention courses and hosting spiritual meetings, including a scripture study group. Unsurprisingly, the center experiences a bump in charitable donations leading up to Christmas, which Kim says drops off after the holidays end. There is a big drop-off. Here is my wish for everyone who reaches out during the holidays, that they take that genuine touch to their heart that they experience and that they continue to act in a way going forward so that their heart is continually warmed by that. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. We talk about books a lot in our office, books that we love, books that we hate, books that publicists sent us and we know we should read, but we haven't gotten a chance to yet. And Mary Rezaj has been talking for a few weeks about the self-help book and New York Times bestseller, Girl, Wash Your Face, by blogger, lifestyle brand guru, and motivational speaker, Rachel Hollis. So we asked her to review it for the podcast. Here's Mary on Girl, Wash Your Face. Girl, Wash Your Face. I'm the kind of person who shouldn't read self-help books written by my peers. I have very high standards for who has any legitimate authority in my life. Jesus, the Pope, my mom, the cashier at Chick-fil-A, my best friend when she tells me light pink shirts wash me out and make me look like a ghost, my editors, who will be listening to this. But I have a hard time accepting advice from almost anyone else, which probably makes me a bad candidate to read any book telling me how to live my life. Even a book done in a motivational, yell-it-in-your-face-and-metaphorically-kick-your-butt kind of way. Especially a book done that way. Anyway, maybe that will color your perspective of my review of Girl, Wash Your Face by lifestyle media queen Rachel Hollis. But here it goes anyway. I have several beefs with this book, but this is a Catholic publication, and I am a Catholic, so let's start with the Catholic beefs. Good thing this doesn't come out on a Friday, am I right? Girl, Wash Your Face was a number one New York Times bestseller last year and was plastered all over my social media feeds by friends who had jumped on that train. It's marketed clearly as a Christian book, and it's published by a Christian publisher. Now, I'm normally not one for these kinds of books, as I previously mentioned, but the ubiquitous popularity of it and the promise that it was Christian made me curious, so I picked it up for 30% off at Target and pitched it as a story for work. In Hollis's book, each chapter deconstructs a lie she once believed about herself. Lies many of us can probably relate to. I am not enough. I am not a good mom. I should be further along by now. And so on. These lies come to us from society, from trauma we've experienced, and even, Hollis admits, to some degree from the devil himself. So, how does Hollis suggest you fight the lies of the devil? by being rooted in your identity in Christ, by working on your relationship with God, by reading scripture and filling your mind with the truth? 
is what I was expecting from a Christian book, am I right? But that's not Hollis's approach. Hers is a pick yourself up by your bootstraps, work harder, refuse to take no for an answer kind of approach. Work out more, write more, have sex more, dream more, self-care more, do more, be more, try more, get more. Woof. Girl, take a nap. I was especially shocked when it came to one of the most significant traumas she went through in her life. Her advice was about going to therapy and talking through it. Those things are good and often necessary parts of healing from trauma, but to omit God entirely from the chapter really shocked me. Girl, talk to Jesus. When something published by a Christian publisher and marketed to me as a Christian book fails to mention a prayer life and a relationship with God as the source of peace and happiness and growth and anything good in our lives, I feel cheated. Like I was handed an orange LaCroix when I was promised a Fanta. Your life is up to you, Hollis says. You are in charge of your own life, sister, and there's not one thing that you're not allowing to be there, she urges. If we can identify the core of our struggles while simultaneously understanding that we are truly in control of conquering them, then we can utterly change our trajectory, Hollis tells me. But here's what the Bible says. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Which leads me to my next Christian beef with this book. For the daughter of a Pentecostal preacher, Hollis sure plays fast and loose with some interpretations of scripture. Probably the most extreme example of this comes in the chapter called, I'm bad at sex. Hollis quotes Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the bed be undefiled. Hollis interprets this as literally anything goes in the marriage bed. What I take away when I read that line, she says, is that the things that happen in my bed with my husband cannot be weird or bad or wrong. The mental gymnastics required for anyone, let alone the daughter of a preacher, to read that verse as a free pass to do literally anything within your married sexual life is pretty baffling. She also never mentions discernment of God's will in the goal-setting process. Hollis never suggests asking God if it's really his will for you to own a vacation home in Hawaii or to become one of the world's top 100 CEOs or to be the next Beyonce. These are the dreams that Hollis says she has pinned up in her closet. And what happens if God has something to say about that? The biggest piece of advice I remember from the Bible is pick up your cross and follow me, not crush your goals and dreams above all else. Another major beef I had with Hollis, and the pun is fully intended here, she is really mean to fat people. Maybe I'm taking this a little personally. I don't consider myself fat. After an eating disorder nearly killed a relative of mine, I've worked pretty hard on body positivity and a healthy relationship with food. But this book is no help to anyone who struggles. So much of the book is spent obsessing over body image and equating certain foods to being bad or to letting yourself go. In one chapter, Hollis even asks readers to think about whether Pam, a hypothetical friend at work, could really be trusted if she quit her Whole30 diet halfway through and was caught eating pizza in the break room. Y'all, would you respect her? Hollis asks us of Pam. Would you count on Pam or the friend who keeps blowing you off for stupid reasons? Would you trust them when they committed to something? Would you believe them when they committed to you? No. Yikes. Poor Pam. 
Pam, come over to my house sometime. We'll hang out and eat Papa John's. I'm a rewards member. I found myself wondering halfway through the book how she does everything with four young kids. This is her schedule. Traveling the country for speaking gigs and conferences, working full time, producing a morning show with her husband every morning. And then this sentence helped me make more sense of things. People ask me how I do it all, Hollis says. And the honest truth is I absolutely don't. Behind the scenes is an incredible, loving friend and sister who takes care of my kiddos when work or travel takes me away from them. Now, I don't have kids yet, but when I do and someone with a full-time nanny comes along to tell me how to live my life, I will laugh. Hopefully not in their face, but I can't be sure. Girl, take a hike. Besides all of that, when it gets down to it, what Hollis says is not all that original. Set small achievable goals for yourself, get enough sleep, drink enough water, eat your veggies, exercise, believe in your dreams. Almost all of it is nothing you haven't heard before. Do we really need to pay Rachel Hollis $16.99 per book and give her hours of our time and attention on social media to accomplish these things? Look, the self-care movement is big now, and I get the appeal of Rachel. She's cute, she's funny, she wants you to be better, and who doesn't want that? But let's remember to first turn our attention to God, to seek first his will for our lives, and to rest in our identity as his children. That doesn't mean that I want your dreams to die, but it does mean I hope you eat some cheese sometime without thinking twice about it. It does mean that if you've found yourself scrubbing toilets for a living in order to support your family, I think you're wonderful, and I won't ever tell you that you've settled for less. It means that I hope your biggest life goal is becoming a saint, and that you're working harder for that than you are for any dream vacation house. So I guess if I could say anything to Rachel Hollis, I would say, girl, chill out. It doesn't all depend on you. That's our podcast for this week. Next Friday, January 18th, is the National March for Life in Washington, D.C. Since we publish on Thursdays, next week's episode will be our pro-life episode. But listen, it's not too late for you to get on a plane, a bus, a train, a hitchhiking line, and go to the March for Life in D.C. Don't really hitchhike, and if you do and something bad happens, don't sue us. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Joan McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Girl, wash your face.